Have you ever thought of what heaven is really like? I mean, is it a busy place or a quiet place or is there good weather all of the time? To some degree, movies and TV has really shaped our image of what heaven is really like. But when we look at what Jesus said about it, heaven is much bigger than we imagined. And it's much closer, too. That's today on the podcast. Hey, this is Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thanks so much for listening into our Tower Hill podcast. Whenever or wherever you're listening, we hope this podcast blesses you, and we hope that you feel free to share it with someone that you know so that they'll feel blessed too. We are digging deep in this sermon series called Beyond Belief, and today Pastor Jason continues to explore what the Bible says about heaven. Heaven isn't too far away, and it's more than what we first think. Let's check it out right now. Welcome, everyone. We're in the middle of our series called Beyond Belief, Why Salvation, Jesus, and Heaven Are Infinitely Bigger Than You Imagine. This whole series is really, and I hope that you're enjoying it because we're really drilling down on some deep issues. Because if Christianity 101 says, well, you just got to put your faith in Jesus and then you're good and then you get to go to the good place when you die, I think there's more to it. And I think it matters for how we follow Jesus Christ. And so we're drilling down a little bit. And as you know, we've been using this book as kind of a background resource called Eternity is Now in Session by John Ortberg. And I want to encourage you to get that book if you can. I think it's a really nice way of framing and summing up really what we've been talking about. And the number one thing we're really talking about is that If faith is a line to be crossed, where we put our faith in Jesus and then all of a sudden, like, we're good, that might accidentally become something like, okay, well, what is the minimum I need to do to make sure that I'm good with God? What is the absolute minimum? If I just put my faith in Jesus and am I good and I cross the line and then, like, that's it. But Jesus doesn't say, here are the minimum requirements to get into heaven. Instead, he says, follow me. Do what I do care about what I care about. Live the way that I live. That's really the call that Jesus is making upon our lives. And so if we're going to follow him well, it requires two components. We shared this last week. It it requires understanding. Got to understand what he's calling you to do. But then at some point, you got to jump in the pool and give it a go. You're not just going to learn to swim by watching Michael Phelps. Like you're not just going to learn to live like Jesus just by watching Jesus live. You're going to have to actually get up and follow him. And so the really important thing to get is, all right, well, what mattered most to Jesus? What is he trying to teach the people around him? What's like, if you had to boil it all down, what is the big idea that Jesus has? And then what does that mean for me? And the big idea is this. It's all about the kingdom of God. So Luke four forty three, Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Because that is why I was sent. I was sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. So it stands to reason we should try to figure out what the heck he's talking about. What do you mean when you say the good news of the kingdom of God? If it means that much to Jesus where he feels like that's why he was sent, well then we ought to spend some time unpacking that a little. And that's what we've been working on the last couple of weeks. So in the kingdom of God, 
This is where God's rule and reign are complete. And we've talked a lot about life in the two kingdoms. And that heaven is the kingdom of God. In other words, heaven is the, version, is the full version of the kingdom of God where God's rule and reign are complete. And the kingdom of God as we live it here and now is the place where God's rule and reign are complete. It's just a voluntary kingdom, right? So there, if there are two kingdoms in this world, uh, the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God, we volunteer to bend the knee to the one true king and live in his way. Live our kingdom of God way, where there's true justice, where there is freedom from oppression and suffering, where there's comfort and peace and mercy, where we can see God. Now, as a, an important disclaimer is, this is not the same thing as saying like, oh, well then, does that mean God's not in control of everything? He's only in control of his kingdom? Well, of course not. God's in control of all things. But his kingdom is the kingdom where his rule and his reign are complete. And then the rest is like this whole free will mess that he left us. where We don't have to be part of the kingdom of God we don't want. And it creates all this garbage. But he's, he's allowing it for now until such time as he will make all things new. So if we were going to frame it kind of like we've been doing using our little baseball field. If Jesus is home plate. That sounds a little sacrilegious. I think he'll, he'll forgive me though. If Jesus is home plate. If you're lining a baseball field. If Jesus is the king, Jesus is the one who sits on the throne. He is the one who brought the kingdom of God near to us. He makes it possible for us to be in the kingdom of God because he pays for our sins on the cross, right? It's a supernatural act to get us into the kingdom of God. And then as the lines go out, the kingdom of God has been growing ever since Jesus. And it's growing at an angle. So if you're going to draw those, those lines out, For thousands of years, or however long it's going to take, eventually there'll be nothing else left but everything in the fair territory, everything on the field. Where one day, Jesus will return, and the kingdom of God will be fully realized. At the same time, in heaven, the kingdom of God is being lived in its full realization there. So it's like, it's already... We can experience the kingdom of God and not yet. And one day. It's a dual reality of God's rule and reign. All right, now that I put you to sleep, we're going we're gonna to get to the good news. Because this stuff, like I said, this is Christianity 201, man. We're going a little deeper. All right, so the good news of the gospel. Jesus says, I got to bring the good news of the kingdom of God. So what in the world is he talking about? Well, he's talking about what we call the gospel. And that word gospel means good news. It comes from a Greek term, euangelion, which means good news. And this, interestingly, this word gospel was not invented by Christians. It was a word that was common in the ancient Roman Empire prior to Jesus. And it was used in one of two ways. The first way is whenever Caesar, you know, they believed Caesar was divine, They believed he was a son of God, right? So you see a lot of parallel language where the Christians are like, nope, we got the real son of God. We have the real divine one. But whenever Caesar would deliver sort of an edict, they would receive it as good news, euangelion, gospel. This was the good news given by Caesar, whether it was really good news or not. The other way this term was used was it was a military term 
where uh, the Roman Empire, they'd be out fighting some poor clan that stood no chance. And then they would achieve victory. And a messenger from the front lines would come all the way back to Rome and tell Caesar the Evangelion, the good news. Victory has been won. And so you see what Christians did there. They took this whole idea of like worshiping Caesar and they leveraged it to say something true about Jesus. Like, no, no, no. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is where our victory is won, where sin is defeated. Death is put to death and we now have life. That is the good news. And so you get this word gospel becomes the good news about what Jesus did. Now, You'll notice, you know, when you open your Bible, usually it'll say in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it'll say things like the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. The good news uh, from their perspective, as they chronicled, as they wrote down and thought about and were inspired, the good news. Now, the good news, of course, is that Jesus saved us. He brought the kingdom of heaven near. He brought the kingdom of God near. And and we think of the gospel as Jesus, and we should. But Jesus himself had news to share when he came among us. And if you would define what this good news really was, it was all about the kingdom of God. So from eternity is now in session. I think he puts it really succinctly. This is page 18. The kingdom of God has now through Jesus become available for ordinary human beings to live in. That is the gospel of Jesus. That was his message. The kingdom of God is here. It is now. It is available for you to experience now. Eternity is now in session. Eternal life begins now. And this was Jesus' message from Matthew 4, 7. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what that means... The kingdom of heaven came near because Jesus came among us. Wow, too early on the joke. <laughs> but we do know that heaven isn't too far away. I was, man, I was going to kill it with that. I was going to kill it with that. By the way, is that a great poster or what? He's got the reverse Winnie the Pooh going on, no shirt, pants. But anyway, let's, let's get off that slide. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go to the next one. Might want to clear that background. So yeah. oh, my brain. So the, the kingdom of God, if Jesus came to live among us, if Jesus came to live among us, it means that the kingdom of God came to us. We didn't go to it. It came to us through Jesus. If you were to wonder what does the kingdom of God look like, it looks like Jesus. Jesus is the full embodiment of the kingdom of God. He's the king of that kingdom. He lives in the way of the kingdom of God. So if it's like, well, what's the kingdom of God like? Well, it looks like Jesus. It's, it's freedom. It's forgiveness. It's love. It's justice. It's healing. It's power. It's resurrection. It's truth. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. So you can make the case, I think this is a, a logical step, is to say the kingdom of God. Salvation is not just about getting into heaven. It's about getting heaven into you. And that was the joke. Heaven isn't too far away. 
So last week, we were talking about heaven. We're going to continue our conversation about that. And we were kind of joking around that when people describe heaven, they think it looks a little, it sounds like a gated community in Florida, right? Oh, you know, there's palm trees and there's water. There's a great golf course. Martinis, I don't know. It's funny what you hear. I don't want to say funny. That wasn't the right word. It's interesting what you hear in some funerals. Because when people talk about people who passed on, sometimes it sounds like they're going to Florida. Like, I know he's up there with a cigar and a bourbon and saying, you know, I, maybe. I, that doesn't really sound right, but who knows? <laughs> who knows? I'm not there. If the, king, the kingdom of God looks like Jesus, I, I'm just not seeing Jesus do much of that. But he might love golf. I don't know. Jesus, he probably kills on the links, I'm telling you. So... But it's funny how much of popular culture, I was thinking about this myself, how much of popular culture is kind of rattling around in my brain when I think about heaven? Like how, many, how much of what I know about heaven, even as a pastor, is formed by what I've seen and heard just growing up in life? I was thinking about, you know, recently I was flipping the channels and I saw those old Bugs Bunny cartoons. Now they were reruns when I was a kid. I don't know when they were actually made, but let's just say it was a different time. Those things are violent. I feel like someone would call on me and report me for showing my kids Looney Tunes. I don't know. It seems very, it's a different time. But I remember uh, Elmer Fudd, Daffy Duck, you know, they'd be going after uh, bugs and they would somehow accidentally like shoot themselves with a shotgun. They'd sprout ring, wings and a halo and they'd go up into the clouds. And I wonder though, as goofy as that sounds, I wonder how much of that stuff is rattling around up there when I think about what heaven is really like. Or thinking about movies. What's, what's going to heaven like? I don't know, maybe it's like Patrick Swayze making pottery. And <laughs> following the light, tear. Following the light, I don't know, is it like that? Maybe. Maybe it's like that. Is it like Field of Dreams? I don't know. But I feel like, all, you know what movie freaked me out as a kid? Poltergeist. If you grew up in the 80s, that movie, done. I could barely watch it now. But I remember Scary Lady. I don't know what her character, I think she was a medium or something. Don't go into the light, you know. I still think of that when I think of, there's a part of it, it's rattling around in there about, well, we're all going to go to a light, and it's going to whisk us away to the sweet by and by. That's movie heaven. Movie heaven's a lot different than the heaven or the eternal life that Jesus talked about. This is from page 12 of the book. I think he puts it well here. Movie heaven is pretty much a pleasure factory that anybody would enjoy as long as they were allowed in. It's just like, whatever you want to do, you get to do it forever. But that's, that's heaven. But the life after death that Jesus describes is very different from movie heaven. And I think uniquely in this way, in heaven, it will be impossible to avoid God. And you might think to yourself, awesome, finally, I'm in God's presence, I get to, you know, whenever I talk to Karen about heaven, she's like, I'm not going to care if you're there at first, because I'm just going to be doing this. (laughs) I get it, I totally get it. Heaven is the inescapable presence of God. 
But before you jump for joy in that, I think it's important to understand exactly what that means. I'll share it with you this way. When I was four years old, my mom would take me grocery shopping. Again, I grew up in Southern California, so it was Ralph's. Ralph's, anyone? Ralph's. So we used to go to Ralph's, and at Ralph's in the produce section, there are these plastic bins that had candy in them. Candy, nuts. You've seen bins like this before with the big scoop. You're supposed to fill up your bag. So there were gumdrops in this one bin, and I asked mom. Again, I'm four years old. Mom, can we get the gumdrops? No. Okay. So I decide, when mom's not looking, I stick my hand in, grab some gumdrops, pocket them. And then in my devious little four-year-old self, I say, Mom, can I go to the bathroom? She says, sure. Now, looking back, it's kind of messed up. Like, who lets a four-year-old go to a sketchy supermarket bathroom by themselves? Like, those things are sketch. And, but she did. And I, <laughs> but I went, I went to the bathroom, and of course, I downed the gumdrops. I removed the evidence. And, and <laughs> I, go, I go back out to Mom. And, you know, crime accomplished. Every, you know, she had no idea. And other than maybe, the, maybe my teeth were a little stained, but she didn't notice. Uh, clearly, she wasn't paying much attention. <laughs> but we go outside to the car, and we sit in the car, and she goes to start it. And I just blurted it out. I'm like, I told the truth. I couldn't stand the guilt of being in my mom's presence in that moment, knowing what I had done, it was going to drive me crazy. I had to say something. And of course, like, you know, like she brings me back in. I say, I'm sorry. Obviously, I couldn't, like, give them back. <laughs> but, you know, it was this whole, it was this whole thing. Now, why do you think it is that when we knowingly sin, we go run off to the supermarket bathroom, right? We don't want anyone to see what we're doing. Why is it that we go and hide, or we try to hide, when we sin? Why is that? Well, there's a deep shame that's working in there, something that we know to be wrong. I don't want mom watching me stick my hand in the candies. I want to do it away from mom. Because when I'm in mom's presence, I feel like I shouldn't do that. So what does it mean when we're going to be in heaven and God's going to be inescapable? It means like there's no running away for a quick sin. There's no trying to hide from him to do something that we know to be wrong. It's going to be different. Now, are we going to want to do that stuff? I don't know. I, wouldn't, I would think that we're fully content being in the presence of God. But I think this is an interesting thought. In heaven, it will be impossible to avoid God. I think Dallas Willard uh, had this to say about it. He says, I am thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. I think that's an interesting thought. He says elsewhere that sometimes the best that God can do for some people is hell. Because to them, being in the presence of God is not something they're interested in, in this life or the next. There's a lot there to unpack. I don't even know exactly how I feel about that statement, but I feel like in there is something deeply true. 
That if we want nothing to do with Jesus now, why would we want everything to do with him forever? That when we're talking about heaven, when we're talking about salvation, it's more than just in the hereafter. But it's in the here and now. And I think it gets to this. I believe eternal life is not quantitative. It's qualitative. In other words, eternal life just doesn't mean the number of days you're going to have to live. I think it means living a completely different life. It's different than the life we start out with. It's a life that is given and is found in Jesus Christ, here and now and forever. And so to me, salvation isn't just about getting in. It's about becoming the kind of person who wants in. I think this is summed up in this teaching of Jesus. Jesus ran into somebody that we know in Scripture as the rich, young ruler. How about that combo? Rich, young, had their whole life ahead of them. (laughs) And ruler, they had a lot of influence and authority. This rich, young ruler was following Jesus, and they have this interaction. As Jesus started on his way, a, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Hey, do you notice something about this guy? He's a quick learner. He's really sharp. How do I know that? Because he starts off, he he calls Jesus good teacher. Jesus corrects him and he doesn't say it again. He doesn't call him good teacher the next time. He's already changed his behavior to follow what Jesus said. Just says, teacher. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that line. Don't you feel it's sort of like uh, what Southerners do when they say, bless your heart? <laughs> Which is one of my favorite things Southerners do. He looked at him, he loved him, and just like, oh man, you don't. You don't get it. He continues. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. A couple of things to note, I think. The first is, I think Jesus' call to this rich young ruler was to say, you need to be willing to be the kind of person that wants into heaven. You need to be the kind of person who wants to live in the kingdom of God before the kingdom of this world. And wealth is getting in the way. So that's the thing I'm going to ask you to lay down. And he didn't want to do it. 
I don't know what your thing is, but all of us have one or multiple that we're just not ready to lay down. And that whole bit about, well, then who can be saved? Jesus is reminding them, it's not people who earn it. You can't do it on your, on your own. I've got to do it for you. It is impossible with man, only possible with God. And here's uh, something that Ortberg points out that I think is right on. It says, Jesus does not say, pray this prayer and then go on your way. He doesn't say, believe the right things about me and then you'll get into heaven when you die. No, he says, lay it down and follow me. Lay down your thing, whatever's getting in the way, and then come follow me. Yes, you're bright. Yes, you got everything going for you, but one thing you lack, and it's the main thing. So, what are our takeaways as we go on to this week? How do we land all of these kind of big ideas into everyday life? I think in a couple of ways. The first is, is that salvation is a lifestyle, not just a status. It is a status. I think if anybody asks you, uh, and maybe you've been asked before, when were you saved? Everybody used that language with you before? It's a language that comes from a more evangelical tradition. talks about the time that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. I have no problem with that language, but I think it's not quite complete. Because I don't think it's just about crossing a line and then kind of the rest of your life doesn't matter. I think it's a both and. It's a status, but it's a lifestyle. Yes, I was saved June 1992, and I'm being saved every single day. I think the second thing is, again, belief and knowledge must be tied to action. It's kind of like, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of try, you know, trying to eat healthy and, you know, trying to lose weight and all this stuff. And anybody who's tried to do that, you know how hard that can be. But after a lifetime of, you know, kind of struggling with this, in my head, I execute it perfectly. I know everything. I know exactly what kind of carbs and protein and everything. I know the calories. I know everything that's going to make me healthy. Executing on that knowledge is something quite different. And this is the same exact thing with our following of Jesus. You could be an expert up here, but you don't execute it in your everyday life. You gotta have both. And then the third is, and this is so important, God's promise, you know what it is? His presence. His presence is the promise. God here and now. The promise that God's going to be with you forever, beginning as soon as you want him to. It's not just about the gated community in the sky. It's about the here and now. So let's do it. Let's go beyond belief into real discipleship. Amen.